Hi, this is Carol Geisander. I'm the author of the story, The Yellow Sign in Under Twin Suns, Alternate Histories of the Yellow Sign. And you're listening to HP Lovecast Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the HP Lovecast Presents Fragments. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. And good day. Uh, I am Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Uh, Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature, From Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. As we occasionally do, we have switched our regular HP Lovecast program with our Fragment series. So on today's episode, we will be discussing the supernatural horror film, The Vich, which marks uh, Robert Eager's directorial debut. The 2015 film was released by A24 and stars Anya Taylor Joy, Ralph Inson, Kate Dickey, and Harvey Crimshaw. Nick, would you like to provide us with a plot synopsis before we jump into our discussion? It is the Puritan times, New England, 1600s. The Lord is law. William, his wife Catherine, his children Thomason, Caleb, Mercy, and Jonas are forced out of their community and into the wilderness. They set up a new home outside some spooky woods. Months have now passed. Autumn is starting to transition to winter, and Williams, his farmstead, hasn't grown much crops. Thomason takes Samuel, Catherine's newborn son, outside the farm to play peekaboo. While Thomason has her eyes covered, a witch swoops in, plucks the baby up, and pulverizes him to make potions. <laughs> Needless to say, this might be the straw that breaks this family that has no doubt been a powder keg since being exiled, on the cusp of starvation and under very... Very, very, very strict religious devotion. William takes Catherine's cup to sell for supplies, but lets Thomason take the blame for it, as she has already been blamed for the loss of Samuel. William and Caleb secretly go hunting. The twins, Mercy and Jonah, start singing praise of Black Philip, the devil goat. Upon hearing that the family wishes to give Thomason to another family, Caleb and Thomason venture into the forest to hunt in hopes to come back with something. Thomason is thrown from her horse while Caleb happens upon a witch's hovel, where he is seduced. Thomason is blamed for his disappearance as well. In the night, Caleb comes back naked and delirious. The family prays for him, but he dies. Thomason is accused of witchcraft, but fires back William's misdeeds at him. Uh, with nothing left to do, William locks all his remaining children up in the goat shack. The next day, the goat shack has imploded. The twins are missing. William is gored by the black goat. Catherine attacks Thomason, who kills her in self-defense. Thomason consults with the black goat, and Black Philip comes before her. She signs his book and joins a coven of witches in the forest. I guess we might have wanted to say that there are spoilers. <laughs> so, Michelle, thoughts about the witch? First impressions. Well, you know, many of the elements of the movie really came together well for me. But there was also a few elements that didn't do it for me, which leads me to conclude that this was a decent film, but I wasn't blown away by it like a lot of others have been. I think for supernatural horror films, The Witch's Narrative is probably one that I don't usually actively seek out. Um... And I'm more interested, I guess, in ghosts, UFOs, um, possession spirit type films. Um, but that said, if I was asked would I recommend this movie, most definitely I would. How about you? I think The Witch is one of those films, after 
because it's been out for about five years now, and it's been nothing but accoladed and triumphant around on social media, especially since we're part of the Horror Writers Association, all of our friends sing of its praises, that I think we were expected to love it. And I didn't love it. I liked it. And I think I was expected to love it because of the buzz around it. To me, the movie's a lot like Requiem for a Dream. Um, it's a hard movie. And it's probably a good movie to talk about more than it is to watch. It's finely crafted. It has a... It's it's very... I don't know what the word is, but I'm just going to say heavy. Heavy throughout the entire film that leads to a kind of a not pleasurable watching experience. And not that every movie needs to be a pleasurable experience, but um, I, th I think when we were talking... Uh, the analogy I came up with is, if this was a cake, all the ingredients are perfect for this cake, and it's baked to perfection, but at the end when you take a bite of it, you're like, oh, turns out I don't really like this type of cake. And I think that's a little bit with The Witch. It does have some technical issues, and but again, I think it's a well-crafted film. I like the film. I just don't love the film, and I think as we talk, I think we'll both unearth why we kind of have a little bit of reservations with the film. Yeah, I think so. Um, where would we like to start? Let's talk about what the film this nails, nails perfectly, and that's visuals. Um, this is a pretty film, and it's pretty in that it's not pretty. That, you know, we're looking at this forested New England setting. It's perpetually gray. It's on the cusp of raining. I mean, after watching <laughs> The Mimic, where you have this dirty city that's constantly raining, this is like the before that. Um, it's the end of autumn, almost winter, everything's kind of dying and decaying, and yet it still looks gorgeous. The uh, the composition of each shot, um, th there's a scene when they bring Caleb back and he's like kind of, you know, he's resting on the floor and they're praying over him. You know, they're like to either side of him and there's like a window above him. It's just such a nicely crafted shot. All the, the forested shots, this isn't like a lush, green, verdant, you know, fantasy forest. You know, this is a forest where all the trees are, like, kind of thin and sticky. When I say sticky, I mean, like, sticks, not, like, gooey. Um, you know, there's this foliage all over the floor of dead leaves and everything, and yet it it looks good. It, it looks... You are definitely drawn into the setting and the visuals of that setting. Yeah. Um, visuals, I think, back when we... Uh, after we had finished watching the film, and the first thing you asked, well, what did I think of it? Let me start with the visuals <laughs> um, because I thought the visuals were absolutely amazing. They were spot on. Um, and that's kudos to the cinematographer Jaren um, Blash Blaschke, um, who's actually partnered with Eggers on the 2019 um, The Lighthouse, which we haven't seen. Um, but we do have shot, a copy. <laughs> yeah, and it was shot in black and white. And um, there's a yet-to-be-released The Northman. Um, you know, what struck me about uh, the visuals with this is that there really wasn't a wide range of a color palette with this. It was very, very focused. It's very, very um, primary, and they're subdued colors. Like, you don't really see red except for one time. Or twice. The, the blood of the baby being even pulverized. That's, and then the red cape. Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, but other than that, there really isn't a lot of color to this. It's a very basic, very... And I'm going to use the word Puritan colors uh, throughout um, throughout the film. It's um, almost a black and white film due mm -hmm. to the lack of color in it. Um, yeah, Puritan, <laughs> Puritan in... Uh, you know, uh, subject matter, period, and color. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because there isn't a whole flash of colors, I felt that Blaschke had to be even more so on his A-game. There isn't an opportunity for the cinematographer to kind of hide behind, behind flashy colors if a shot's not quite working. Um, so he really did bring it home. The other thing is that um, I was reading that Egger shot only with natural light, and when Barry Lyndon, like Kubrick and Barry yeah. Lyndon. Okay. So I was going to bring that up. Oh, sorry. Um, is that he shot with natural light, and then indoors the lighting source was typically candles, and we see that in the um, meal time. There's basically one candle 
on the table and I think there's like a few candles around but that is all natural light and yes it reminded me of Barry Lyndon which gave it almost a canvas feel with every shot and I really got that sense uh with this film you, you know when you say say Barry Lyndon that's it's like it the witch is like Barry Lyndon in a sense like you know you just watched a, a good film or a finely crafted film but you know you think of all of Kubrick's films you're like oh man I'd rather watch any other film other than Barry Lyndon I know it's supposed to be a good film but give me a Dr. Strangelove or a Shining over Barry Lyndon any day I know it's good it looks good but mm -hmm. holy smokes the witch is like that yeah, but as far as shots, you know, the fact is that this this um, cinematographer, I think he'd done a couple of films before, but this was the first time that he partnered with um, Eggers, and um, it it's definitely an, an excellent um, partnership, and I, I think that's part of what set the visuals apart so much was the fact that um, Blaschke was using natural light, he was using candles, um, you know, kudos also to the costuming, the fact that they were trying to be very uh, genuine to the time period. Um, I had read that Edgars had wanted to shoot in uh, New England where he actually grew up, so he's very familiar with the area. And um, But because of tax incentives or, you know, being able to get some money off tax-wise, it didn't work to film in New England and he had to film in Canada and he went basically out to a very remote area that you know really reminded him of New England it made it was problem shooting there because it was so remote um, but the payoff was amazing I think the almost black and white nature of this film and its which subject matter really harkens back to Blair Witch Project from 20 years prior, which, you know, there's definitely some overlap in uh, subject matter there. And also, you know, we're talking about the pop of red, in uh, especially in a black and white-esque movie. I think of movies like Europa by uh, Von Trier, which is, you know, mostly black and white with only very sparing uses of color. Um, but also I thought of the movie Mandy, which is also a very, you know, forested film and how maybe because of subject matter in both films that... You know, every frame is almost a black metal album cover. <laughs> um, but, the, 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 so there is some great technical aspects in the visuals. However, uh, there's some technical issues, I think, with the sound. Um, especially in the dialogue. Um, and this is something we've been noticing maybe in the last 10 years of movie making. And it's just that... The mixture of sound is just off nowadays. We we have to have subtitles on for everything. You you see like Christopher Nolan films, which the sound is off and that everything is so loud and you can't hear everyone, versus this type of film where everything is so soft that you can't hear anyone. And there was entire sequences where our subtitles are going, and we have our volume cranked, but you really can't hear anyone when they're doing kind of silent prayers to themselves and everything. And it's like, maybe if we were in a movie theater, it might be, you know, presented better. But, you know, we have a fairly new TV. We'd, um, that it, we just got last year. So. Yeah, so so it's like, you know, we're probably in the same boat of other people watching this on Netflix now or something. So, I don't know. It's just, nowadays, and especially it seems prevalent in this film, is... There's this, the sound mixture is off when it comes to, to dialogue. Yeah. Um, there's a, an early scene where William and Caleb go out to the forest and there's dialogue that exchanges between them. Now the shot is Caleb and William are in the background. The forest is in the foreground. And as a result, the dialogue is presented from a distance. I, t I get, I understand the technique, but it was almost impossible to hear them. And even the dialogue, particularly with this film, the fact that, again, Eggers is going, you know, with a genuine portrayal of the Puritan uh, life, they speak in a Puritan. So it's, it's 1600s English speak, which makes it also difficult because even when your ears are listening and you're your brain is, is trying to calculate what the next sound or word is going to be. 
your ears are kind of at a disadvantage too because the cadence of the language is not modern. So it's difficult to like have your brain kind of like fill in the blanks. You know how the, how your brain will do that. So it's that's a challenge. And I think that's part of what I had with this is some of the language, like even reading the subtitles, if it went quickly, I was like, well, I just missed something. I know it. And, it, you know, it's the these, the thous, and the kind of like meaning one thing but another, speaking another. It, yeah. it, it was a challenge. Yeah. Language is important in this film. And, and to bring up another Kubrick reference, I guess we're just going to keep bringing up Kubrick in this uh, thing. It's like Clockwork Orange because in Clockwork Orange they have their, I think it's called NADSPAC speak nadsat speak or something where it's like a combination of like english slang and russian slang you know they'll say things like very well little brother uh but you know the language is very important in that to establish mm -hmm. you know alex and his droogies identity and whatnot and you know i think most period piece films today you know uh not today probably forever you know they don't go that distance to try to speak um in that style, because, you know, as a modern day audience, we, we it's hard for us to decipher that. And I, I think I actually applaud them going the route of trying to go, you know, period accurate architecture, period, period uh, accurate costuming, period accurate language. And it, lighting. It, and lighting. Mm -hmm. it, yeah, it's more work on the viewer. And it, and it does make, and I'm okay to work for a film. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when you go that extra distance, I, I'm okay with that, but it is extra work for us as a viewer. So any, I'd say any help that filmmakers can give, such as mixing the audio, right? Re well, really are, makes are the just, experience just better. better because I, you know, we talked about this offline, the fact that if we had seen this in the theater, I would have been, like, missing a lot of the dialogue if I didn't have the subtitles. Mm -hmm. um, I would have missed some of the dialogue because, like you said, the sound, they're, they're further away from the camera, so obviously it's going to be harder to hear them. But we as an audience should be kind of, like, omnis omnipresent. Yeah, we're voyeurs. Um, That's movie going 101. We're voyeurs to this world. Yeah, it? so we need to have those keys and um, I would have been very challenged to see this in the theater. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, just to say this is one of those films that does need another viewing. I think one viewing is not enough. Yeah, as a side note, like, like Requiem for a Dream and probably most Kubrick films, yeah, this is one of those films that you need repeat viewings to pick up all the nuances, which appreciates more in each viewing. Uh, like for me, like I love the movie Carnival of Souls, but when I first saw Carnival of Souls, I didn't like it. It was slow. It was black and white. The, the and organ it, it, it soundtrack was, got on my nerves. It, it was a very strange film. I, I think like you, I, I watched it and I was like, got through and I was like, what did I just watch? Um, but I mean, I've I've come to appreciate it through multiple viewings. Uh, Requiem of a Dream should say that that's yeah. uh, directed by Darren Aronofsky. So don't write in the comments that hey, that's not a Kubrick film. We know that, <laughs> but Aronofsky does a lot of Kubrick-esque esque well, type of directorial with lighting and things like that. And his his films similar to Eggers does require multiple viewings and kind of when you see, then you can go back and start making some additional connections. They're, they're all auteurs. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think most auteurs, you know, they are, they are making their films, you know, because they have a very specific vision, a very specific agenda. And there's not too many auteurs out there whose vision goes to more, I'm going to say palpable. Like, you could probably say Steven Spielberg's an auteur, but he also makes films that are a bit more palpable to a general audience you could watch jaws and, and have fun with jaws on the other hand you know watching <laughs> requiem for a dream if you're having fun watching requiem for a dream uh, you probably need to be uh, bonked on the head <laughs> but back to the dialogue here though i think the dialogue also lends to the acting and that's one of the positive things in the film is is the acting is is really good especially with when you're getting into religious extremism because we have seen our fair share of films where you kind of cast these religious extreme characters that you hate them. I, I, th I think of the lady in the mist. 
um, uh, what's her name, Miss Carmody, you know, she, she is, you know, an apocalyptic religious fanatic, and you just, you hate her so much, and we, we there's other movies with similar characters. And, oh, The Mist. Yeah, I The Mist. Like, what, what? The Mist. <laughs> what were you talking about? Oh, okay. The Freak oh, Dare yeah. film with Tom, Thomas, Tom, Thomas Jane. Thomas Jane. I was about to say Thomas Hayden Church for some odd reason. I'm like that's well, not right. Well, he was in there. But 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 yeah, like the lady from the mist. I mean, the folks in um, the witch are seriously one, two steps away from that level of feverishness. But the thing is, is I, I like them, even though. As an outsider, I'm an atheist, and so, you know, a lot of the religious stuff is kind of, you know, especially you see the news nowadays of all kind of the bad things that some of our institutions are doing with, like, right-wing extremism and whatnot, but um, but aside from the point there is, is yeah, I'm watching this family implode, and that that's really the focus of this film. It's not necessarily the witches, per se. It is this imploding family. They are falling apart. Um, despite them turning to the to the good book, you know, William is very prideful. That's why they are exiled. You know, he steals a cup, blames it on other folks. Um, the, the mom is, you know, you know, granted, you know, she lost her, her son, but, you know, she's very accusatory to everyone. The, the twins are, are hellions that are openly worshipping a devil goat. But, but they somehow or another turn a blind eye to that because they're so preoccupied. But I should hate all these people. And, you know, sink, sink my entire, you know... Thomason's the protagonist. I should be with her 100% of the way. Everyone else is antagonistic to her, but I, I'm not. And I think that's a testament to the acting that I do find something, I don't want to say like about everyone, but I'm with everyone. And and as a side note, William's accent, oh man, that, that deep, gravelly voice is, is, has, is good. He has a magnificent voice. He was perfect. Yeah. For this as as they all were um i think with regards to um the actors that eggers sought out he actually specifically um in an interview had said that you know he was looking for english act actors because he again he's looking for that genuineness the buy-in of the audience to these characters and so because um, these would the, have been fresh off the May, not exactly. Mayflower per se, but fresh off the boat from England here. Hence, why the English accents. Yeah. So uh. the you know, and even uh, Catherine comments that she wishes she could go back home, and he's William says, "Oh, back to the plantation," and and she says, "No, back home." You know, in England, and so you know they haven't been that long. I'm even. Um, Thomason is talking to Caleb about the fact when they had the glass in the house and you know he doesn't really remember it but she does uh, you know so it's not so much of a distance time-wise between having come from England coming over to the new world to be thrust into a wilderness um, and then further thrust into the wild um, every actor in this in this film is just absolutely brilliant. The fact that they had to learn to speak um, 1600s <laughs> language um, because it is its own language, um, and not only that, but the cadence of it, mm -hmm. and to pull it off as though it's completely natural. Um, you have young actors in this in this film. Uh, Which Anya, they're Taylor, pretty good. You don't Joy. hate them. No, but what I was going to say is that as young actors, they pull off their parts brilliantly. Mm -hmm. They're right on par with the um, uh, Ralph uh, Ensign and uh, Kate Dickey, who are the parents uh, who've had decades of acting experience. And then you have these, you know, uh, teenagers and children acting alongside them. And there's a chemistry to them. Um, and like you said, Nick, I like all the characters. Um, I, and I think we both laughed at the, um, the point in the film where uh, Mercy and Jonas are actually uh, harnessed to the fence as a way to kind of... <laughs> <laughs> They're roped to the fence. I love it. Yes, like, you know, because Thomason is obviously not trustworthy because she's already lost Samuel and Jacob 
Um, so now Mercy and Jonas are tied to the fence. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Couldn't get away with that today for babysitting <laughs> practices. But back in that day, sure, go for it. Yeah, even though they're too hell yeah. And that's, that's probably why I like seeing kids killed in films. Go, go back to our Mimic episode when we talked about that. Is this because it's really hard for a kid to act and they usually come off really bad in films and you know it takes the right child actor to really pull it off and and so uh yeah as i'm saying you know they're kids but yeah like mm -hmm. you're saying they do pull it off they aren't the annoying little duty heads that we see in a lot of other films yeah. um i'd love to to make a, another point with regards to the locale i'm just looking back in my notes um like I wanted to say, uh, as I said earlier, Eggers had wanted to film in New England, and, and I did indicate that he had grown up in New England. He's actually influenced by a plantation there that he used to go to a lot when he was a schoolboy, and it's called the the Plymouth Plantation, um, that he got inspiration for this film. And so, like, looking at the architecture, I mean, he had somebody that actually came out and built an authentic... Uh, home uh, for the family. Um, the other thing that I got from using this locale, and it's something that we see in Lovecraft stories, um, particularly like Color Out of Space, as well as um, I think Dunwich Horror and, and others, where there seems to be a very structured, organized society or home, farm, uh, versus the wild and natural dark forest and the kind of ecological, uh, you know, being promoted on one side and then you've got the kind of organized, kind of modern life on the other. And so, you know, if we, if we look to this and see, is there Lovecraft elements, I would say, at least with regards to uh, the, the idea of ecology, the organized society, the the clash of the two i think are are here uh well i think they both pull from similar subject matter just because mm -hmm. lovecraft pulls a lot of witchcraft mostly salem witchcraft stuff yeah you know especially like in dreams of the witch house so is this a lovecrafting film no not necessarily no. but they're pulling from the same time periods the same scares the same types of characters and um, you know, this this very well have been a story that existed in the same Lovecraft universe in the distant past. Yeah, um, that that is correct. Um, this time period, um, I think that I read is actually around 1630, so it was prior to Salem Witch Trials. But of course, you've got that that slowing buildup of witches, witchcrafts, you know, Satan, uh, evilness, um, as a way to try to explain actions of people and and kind of the misfortunes of people so okay so so let's use that because this this is where now we're getting into what's my beef with the film okay. um and that's ideology and i think this is probably what you're saying here is a good transition here mm -hmm. um so i do want to preface this by saying you know again going online seeing a lot of our friends and whatnot seeing you know this general horror twitter buzz is what i get out of this is a lot of people identify with the witches at the end that the witches are the good guys or i shouldn't say guys you know good the good characters the good folk and there's a lot of reverence for them and i think that might you know be from the burgeoning you know satanic feminism scene that's going on i just don't know much about that but I, if i had to condense it down to a statement it'd be rooting for the witches and the witch is like rooting for the citizens of summer isle and the wicker man they're not the good guys, you know, and, and I'm going to compare the two because, you know, they're both folk horror and I feel a bit more equipped to talk about Wicker Man. You know, it, you know, when I first started watching Wicker Man, you know, I was pretty much on the side of the Summer Isle folks. I'm like, yeah, Officer Howie, he's such a prude. He's a religious guy. How dare you come on this island and, you know, put a cross up in their grave and kind of ridicule him. You guys are all backwards. But, you know, upon repeat viewings, because Wicker Man is such a joy to watch... You know, the, the citizens of Summerhawk, they're not good people. They engineered Howie to come there and control all his actions to, to kill him. You know, they're murderers. They are not good people. And, and when you start really breaking back the layers of the witch, you kind of unearth that as well. 
So I, I guess it boils down to how to answer this. What do the witches represent? Because I think that kind of answers the question of, are they good or bad folk? And I, I say it because take the focus off the family. The family is doomed, <laughs> regardless of the witches are there or not. They are imploding. You know, had the witches taking the baby, it could have been a witch. It could have been a fox or a wolf like they thought it was. It didn't matter. That's still the catalyst. This family is doomed. Um, so you're go going back to like you're talking about, you know, modernity, nature, ecology and whatnot. I, I, the the, the the easy way out is to say, do the witches represent nature? If you go that route, then yes, maybe they are the good folks. Because at this point, William and his family, they represent progress. They represent westward expansion. They're enroaching onto nature, which we're doing now. You know, Amazon rainforest. We're, you know, unlocking diseases and setting them upon us that we shouldn't be doing because we're twiddling with Mother Nature. And... If you're going that route, and then the witches are the, you know, uh, the judge dreads of nature, for like a better term, then I, I, I get that. But I think that kind of crumbles at the end a little bit, because when Thomason is consulting with Satan, or Black Philip or whoever at the end, what is he promising her? He's promising her progress you want power you want to see the world you kind of want to do your other thing to me those are kind of modernity type things and if that's the case the witches are in the same boat as william and his family you know they're also all white so they, they've all taken over um american indian land anyway so again i think the the nature angle kind of starts falling apart at that point um and especially it comes down to they, they they're both they're all thieves, you know. Uh, William steals the silver cup from his wife. Mm -hmm. Now his attentions may be noble. He's selling it because he needs hunting supplies to care for his family. Yep. But the fact is he, he still steals from it, even though he's supposedly super religious and he should have been smoked down. But then the witches, they steal the baby. The baby's not theirs. They steal that baby for what? To turn, to pulverize that baby, and that's a gruesome scene, and I love it, <laughs> but to turn him into a flying potion. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't like, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming these witches are getting by. Um, they're not at the cusp of starvation like William and his family are. So, to me, the theft of the baby to make a flying potion is, is not out of need, but out of personal gratification or something. And if, if that's the case... These witches are bad people. They freaking stole a baby to turn it to a flying potion. And that kind of breaks, to me, that causes the dominoes to fall down. That these are not the the witches that, these aren't the sexy witches that folks are enamored with. That we see, ooh, I'm going to cast spells and watch Hocus Pocus on Disney. You know, these are real deal witches. And at least in the universe of this film... They're not good. And the only thing they really provide at the end is they provide an out for Thomason. Her her family's dead. She needs somewhere to go. They give her promises. They could be empty promises. We don't know. I mean, there's always, you know, a catch with this type of stuff. But they at least... Yeah, she sold her soul. Yeah. She wrote her name in that book, even when she says, well, I can't write. And, you know, yeah. he's like, well, I'll help you. So, so, so if Thomason at the very end walks away, she joins the witch's coven and she supposedly has power, the ability to travel the world, progressiveness, free will and all that stuff that she wouldn't have under the religious sum of their family, which I do agree with, you know, she, she was going to be stifled there or eventually sold off, but at what cost? It's, if I may, it goes back to what we read last month with Lady Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. At the end of Lady Lovecraft, she's got, <laughs> she's got the monster in her bouffant hair or whatever i called it he's mm -hmm. like dude you could step outside that door and you know, marry that guy and be a servant or you could stick with me and i'll show you the world and you might turn evil in the process but hey you know is that better than what you're going to have before um and so th i think that's kind of what coalesces down is there might be some misplacement on at least from the evidence i'm laying out that i don't think the witches in this film should be adored i think like the citizens of summer isle they're not good people <laughs> they are bad guys bad girls bad bad witches <laughs> bad touch <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I, I looked at it uh, from the standpoint of uh, religious extremism that we've seen, like in summer, um, Midsummer mm-hmm. and, and other films where there's this religion is just at an extreme. And I feel like Eggers does an interesting journey with Thomason's uh, faith because at the beginning we see that she doesn't seem to be in sync with the rest of the family. And so that lays a seed of doubt. Well, why why does she seem to be outside of the family? And one of the questions that, that Nick, you and I kept asking, well, she is, is she a witch or is she not? You know, at what point does she become a witch? Has she been a witch through the entire film? And obviously at the end we, we do find out that answer. But at the beginning, her faith seems to be in crisis and not in sync with the family. Um, you know, William, in his religious uh, fever of not not wanting to comply with the, with the established church, says, that's fine, we're going out in nature, we're, we're, we are going to establish our own set of religious um, standards, um, <laughs> you know, which... You know, is at the at the extreme end of religion. So, as the movie progresses, though, we learn that each family member's faith is in in crisis. William realizes uh, late into the third act that um, he realizes that his pride got in the way of making the the right decisions uh, for his family, and he didn't go to God about asking what is the right right uh decision what is the right course of action with his family he tries to take um a little bit of a hard line with his wife like one he he takes the cup that was her father's or you know some relatives instead of asking her so that's not respectful of her you know to her so he's he's in all sorts of crisis and then Catherine's in crisis because she's like i want to go home I hate it here, you know, um, you know, and she has that confession, uh, towards the end. Uh, Caleb is having fantasies about, about his sister, uh, Thomason. And then of course we've established the twins have been making packs with, uh, Black Phillip, uh, as they charge around the, the yard. So everybody's in crisis. And so, you know, this veneer of supposed good religious families suddenly is breaking apart. Um, and that's, I think, where I th- I kind of felt like the film would have been good if, it, if we hadn't necessarily had a whole lot of viewing of the witch early on. I think, you know, the total focus of the family imploding made a lot of excellent tension in this film and was a great focus of time. I also think that Thomason represents a typical teenager, one who's, you know, kind of rebelling, looking for, you know, her own independence, her own sense of power, you know, finding empowerment through her sexuality because obviously she's going through the change, she's growing breasts, um, you know, things like that. Um, and it, it, she's also having uh, relationship problems with her mother. Her mother, who should be, you know, some uh, her mentor, um, a religious um, model for her as she's growing up. And, you know, they're at odds and she's alienated, particularly, you know, with the disappearance of, of Samuel and not really being able to explain that I was only playing peekaboo. My eyes were only covered for a moment. How do how do how do parents understand, you know, that this is truly what happened without thinking that your child did something else and is lying about it? See that that's like kind of the weird thing because at the end, Thomason's mom tries to kill Thomason, and what gets you to that point that you want to kill your own kid? Mm-hmm. And you know, up until that point, you know. You know, they're all still, you know, they actually still don't know what there's witches out there. There's some like internal, you know, the kids might be witches or something because they need some sort of excuse to cope with the reality of they lost their kid, Samuel, which mm-hmm. happened to be by real witches. But they don't know that. But just, you know, the, the 
I think that they say the time frame of the loss of Samuel to the events of the movie is like mere weeks, like week or two. Yeah, it's not that it doesn't, long. It doesn't take long, and the people that seem to to know mm -hmm. things, uh, what's kind of going on, is actually Mercy and Jonas, <laughs> the, the, the younger the the twins that are the youngest, and Thomason, you know, is is uh, very aware because she has a, a sense of you know, understanding the good book and, and, you know, Satan and the evil and, and has probably had the fear of God put into her. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, she's at odds with her own faith. That's in crisis. And then at the very end of the film, she decides she's lost faith in God and now she's going to have faith in Satan. And so I would say, did she is she really going to find what she's looking for or did she really just go from a one god or one master to another and and in the process she's lost her soul you know because she's so young see the thing is she's one of those damned if you do damned if you don't scenarios because you know she's too young to really make the worldly decisions because she hasn't seen the world Mm -hmm. And oh, granted, they're in a new world, New England, but that's aside the point. But the thing is, she's never going to see that new world anyway underneath her current family because of the religious devotion. So she, it's like she's never going to be in a scenario to make a good situation for herself. And it's like, I do think that the Black Philip is kind of preying on that. And mm -hmm. again, that goes back to my argument of... Guys, these are probably not good witches. <laughs> they may be promising you power, individuality, and whatnot, mm -hmm. but at what cost? But but I, I think what we're talking about here is definitely the central like thesis of this film. Um, I actually like it when a film, not because I'm lazy, but it does make our job a little easier. When they do lay like the thesis statement of the film out in the open, um, towards the very end of the film, before things really go awry... You know, William takes Thomason outside and actually just says, you're a witch. You know, you need to confess all this. Uh, they'll be lenient on you when we take you back. But, you know, Thomason's not a witch. Although, as you are saying earlier, there's some moments like, because of the nature of the film, maybe she is. I mean, she turns into a witch at the end, let's just be honest. But, but no, instead, Thomason spits back at her dad. Look, you know, you and Mom are conspiring to get rid of me. You know, you took the cup, but let me take the fall. You and Caleb went into the fort. You're doing all this lying and whatnot. And she's speaking the truth to him. And mm -hmm. the thing is, he knows it's the truth. And he can't handle it in that Jack Nicholson sort of way. He would rather recede back to his doctrine than hear the actual truth come from his own daughter. That, to him, I don't want to say the lies of the good book, but the answers of the good book are a better safety net than the truth of, yeah, I stole the cup. Yeah, I took the kid out to the woods. Yeah, all this other stuff. And, you know, his reaction to that is, it's kind of to put his head in the sand you know he locks all the kids in the goat shed now to be fair that though, was creepy that, that by is the kind, way that's kind of creepy you know but uh but but to, to his credit though that night because you know the she the dad is accused of being able to do only one thing right and that's to cut firewood Although, I'm going to give him credit. He built some houses. I can't build a house. They've got some houses there. But beside the point... And, and to just bring up another Kubrick <laughs> film, and, and when we were talking about this offline, you actually brought it up, and that's The Shining. Oh, yeah. And I feel like William's character kind of, like, focuses in on what he can do <laughs> the best. <laughs> Chop firewood. <laughs> and he does it all night long. And And, you know, Jack Nicholson's character... Does kind of the same thing, you know. He can't write the novel, so he just says, "What Jack is not a doll boy, or what? Yeah. What, what? Just over and over." Yeah, there's yeah, and, and just like The Shining as well, you know. There's a the, both The Shining and The Witch are breakdown of families that just happen to have supernatural elements. You could take The Witch out of The Witch and still have the same film. You could take The Ghosts mm -hmm. out of The Shining and still have The Shining. Just like when we watched Underwater, you could take Cthulhu out of Underwater and still have a really sweet, you know, escape from a disaster film. The, the witches are almost incidental in The Witch. Um, and just like like in The Shining. But 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 back to, but to William's credit, though, when he's chopping firewood, he does have that epiphany. He actually has mm -hmm. the self-awareness to say, Cripes, it is my pride. 
that's why we're in this boat to begin with. My mm-hmm. my pride back at the plantation forced us out of here. My you know pride to 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 secretly take the cup without my wife knowing. To tail mm-hmm. between legs, go basically sail that for provisions to get by. You know he realizes, and, and you know I have to give him credit because that's the stuff that not a lot of contemporary uh, even me you know it's hard to you know you know come to face to face with an awful truth at times and that's something i think any person uh it's a hard thing to do is to really have that light go off and say oh you know i I, i'm responsible for this i truly am and to actually own it and and to his credit and that's very unlike you know what we see nowadays of maybe extremist religious folks that would never have that epiphany and of course he's rewarded for his epiphany he gets gored by the goat (laughs) yeah and yeah unfortunately his epiphany comes a little late and you know at that point when he makes that that epiphany it's right in the middle of the night the kids uh, thomason is listening uh as he makes this confession to god that you know and and his fervent you know I'm going to say apology, ask for forgiveness, but he doesn't let the kids out. I think if he had let the kids out, had a conversation with his wife, this was the other thing that we talked about is uh, offline was the the communication, the fact that, you know, here's here's a family that's supposed to be, should be all in sync together, and yet, again, underneath the surface, you find that their relationship is in shambles. They don't communicate with each other. Um, they're not really communicating with God. They're not getting his message. And um, him putting the kids in the goat shed is kind of the nail in the coffin, you know, because that's it. They're, you know, if, if he had let them out probably and gone into the house, they might have been safe and they could have gone back to the, the village because that was his... That's what he was saying is that tomorrow morning we're going back to the village. And, you know, of course, you know, the witches got to ramp it up because, hey, we're going to lose our, our blood supply and, and Thomason. <laughs> whatever whatever they need. Yeah, yeah, whatever they need. Yeah, it's, it's never made clear what the witch's relationship with the family is. And maybe that's kind of one of those things that, you know, makes the viewing a little off because it's not clear you know villain has a clear-cut agenda in most cases and the the witches don't you know they steal the baby to make the flying potion they take caleb you know but only because caleb happened upon him and do let's just say pedophilic things to him again people these witches are not good people they do pedophilic things to caleb come on um so at the end when the witches kind of intercede I, I don't know what the motivation behind it is other than that they're just bad witches. Now, I you know, again, the, there's hints dropped through the film like the twins are speaking of Black Phillip and stuff, so it's probably, the you know, the witches are communicating with them through afar, through the goat, all that other stuff. But that's still all antagonistic actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. The witches are bad people. <laughs> well, and again, you know, I, I just want to reiterate, though, I... I don't see this film on par with, like, the scariness or kind of... I'm going to say the scariness of, like, The Exorcist or The Omen or Rosemary Babies. All three films scare the hell out of me, and I won't watch them at night. Um, The Witch has a quiet, slow-burn aspect to it. I think probably with another viewing, I would see a lot of different things and... Now that I now that I've seen the film, I can you know kind of go back through and pick through connections. Um, but all that said, I still think this film is just it is brilliantly done in a lot of ways, and I would still recommend it. it you know, and I, I think we touched upon it at the very beginning. This is a film that it's more better to analyze, scrutinize, and talk about. Than it is to probably actually watch, <laughs> and you know what? And sometimes that's that's the art of filmmaking for you, art of consuming films. Sometimes you need that popcorn film, and sometimes you need the hmm. Let me stroke my chin and raise the eyebrow. What's going on here? And with that, we're going to take a quick musical intermission, and then we'll be back to wrap up this episode with our thank yous and upcoming events. 
Welcome back. Uh, this episode's bumper is courtesy of Carol Geisander. Carol is the author of The Yellow Crown, a short story featured in Under Twin Suns, Alternate Histories of the Yellow Sign. Her stories have also appeared in anthologies such as Cat Ladies of the Apocalypse, Stories We Tell After Midnight, and various writer punk anthologies. We had the pleasure of interviewing Carol on our Transmissions episode back in August. We wish Carol much continued success. And on upcoming events... On HP Lovecast uh, Presents Transmissions, we will spotlight witchy storytellers Kathleen Kaufman and Janet Joyce Holden. This episode will post on Sunday, October 31st. Coming up on our Scholars from the Edge of Time podcast, where we focus on sword and planet genre, we'll be discussing the 2017 film Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. This episode will broadcast live on Thursday, October 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and will be available to stream afterwards on Blog Talk Radio. And, as you probably notice, October is a special time of year for horror fans. It's a month of spooky, creepy, crawly things that go bump in the night. To mark the occasion this year, in October, our programming is focused on witchy stories. We hope you'll join us on Sunday, October 24th, when we'll continue our focus on witches' stories. So HP Lovecast can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And of course, you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do consider supporting us by purchasing our books. Uh, we each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we've either edited or contributed essays to. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we have a coffee account as well. Links are provided in the show notes. Thank you all so much for listening.